This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 28, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, I talk with contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade about contradictory evidence for a hidden ancient empire in Mexico. Next, we hear from Rashid Sumalia about calculating the billions of dollars illegal fishing costs the global economy every year. Finally, in this month's book segment, Kiki Samford interviews Gaia Vince about her book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. Now we have contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade. She wrote a feature this week about an ancient empire hiding in plain sight. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. I got a little mystery there in my intro. Let's keep it going for another half minute. Okay. (laughs) This all started in 378 CE. Yes. According to some monuments in the Maya city of Tikal, there was a visitor from a strange place. Who was this visitor? The strange visitor is named Siakak, which means roughly fire is born in Mayan language. The inscriptions that record his arrival don't really say who he was beyond his name or what he was doing or like what happened, why he came, like, you know, motivations you want if mm-hmm. you're writing a novel or a feature story about him are not there. <laughs> but the key mysterious element here is that on the same day that he arrives, that Siakak arrives, the king of Tikal dies. The implication there is that Siakak is somehow involved in that death and these two events are probably related in some way. Mm-hmm. What kind of clues do we have about the identity of this visitor? Yeah, so he's probably a warrior, but the monuments also say that he's working for this guy called Spear Thrower Owl. And Spear Thrower Owl is a king of a faraway land that Siakak presumably, debatably, maybe comes from. <laughs> and, and eventually Spear Thrower Owl's son becomes the new king of Tikal. After oh. Siakak comes in, Siakak makes Spear Thrower Owl's son the new king of Tikal. So like some relationship is happening between all of these people. Right. And Spear Thrower Owl and his son are both depicted in this style of dress and actually the style of art that's related to the central Mexican city of Teotihuacan. Tikal is not is, is somewhere else. Tikal is about a thousand kilometers to the southeast. It's an important 
Maya city and Teotihuacan is in the mountains of central Mexico. It's a huge metropolis of about 100,000 people. So these are two cultures interacting in some way. And the question is, is whether this event recorded in Maya writing is an invasion or a conquest of Tikal by Teotihuacan. These are very different places, Tikal and Teotihuacan. The Maya sites are in these tropical jungles and Teotihuacan's mm-hmm. in these snowy volcanic mountains. And so like a lot of things are very different about these cultures. Can you describe what it's like to visit Teotihuacan? What really always strikes me is just the scale of this city. And you're only seeing a tiny part of it as a visitor, like a tiny part of the downtown. It went on for for miles and miles in every direction. Thousands and thousands of people from all over Mesoamerica lived there. It must have been really a stunning place. Do you think it's surprising that most people have heard of the Maya world, but not Teotihuacan? I think the Maya world is is bigger. There are like more sites you could go to. Teotihuacan is just this one place. So if you're not in Mexico City, you probably won't go to Teotihuacan or have heard of it. The way that Maya cities were like, quote unquote, discovered and publicized in the 19th century really left such an impression on Mm -hmm. the US and Europe in particularly that I think that they're fame comes from that. There are these sort of mysterious esoteric places and Teotihuacan was, it just doesn't have that piece of it. Going back to this meeting, this transition of leadership in the Maya city of Tikal, this has been known about since the 1970s. What is going on now that makes this making people ask even more questions about what happened back in this place in 378 CE? I think the most interesting new stuff that we know about is coming from Teotihuacan, which is interesting because this writing about this event comes from Tikal. So at Teotihuacan, in the past couple of years, archaeologists have been excavating this site called the Plaza of the Columns. Well, they found one thing that was a feast deposit. So after feasts in Mesoamerica, like a common offering to do after this important event was do like break all these ceramics that you used. Oh, poor archaeologists. Yeah. Yeah. The breaking part isn't that great, but like the leaving them there is perfect. So yeah. archaeologists found this huge deposit of ceramics that include both Teotihuacan and Maya style ceramics. And the mm-hmm. art styles of these two cultures, much like the cities, are just really different. The Maya art, it's like very naturalistic. When they depict people, it has a lot of detail. Mm-hmm. They're very ornate. And Teotihuacan style art is much flatter. It's more geometric more kind of abstract and almost cubist. So it's really easy to tell the difference between. But you have both of them in. Both of them in the same place at Teotihuacan. So the thinking is they had a feast together. Mm -hmm. And very close to this deposit is this very fancy building that people could have worked or lived in that was once decorated with these really intricate Maya murals, which look, again, very different from the other art at Teotihuacan. So the idea is maybe this was some kind of diplomatic residents, the Maya embassy in Teotihuacan, maybe clearly like fancy Maya people are living there. Right. And they live there for about 50 to 100 years, around 300 to 350. This feast happens. But when they find these murals, they're like smashed to bits. They're right next to this building. So they know that they were once on the walls. They've been completely destroyed. And not for fun, like with the plates? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's for fun with the plates. Like these faces are like scratched out. This isn't like a very common thing to do, unlike with breaking ceramics after a feast. And the timing is? 350 to 400. So that's right around the time that Siakak is getting to Tikal in 378. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on at Teotihuacan. We have 
plates, we have murals, we have some radiocarbon dates, but we don't have any written records. We don't have any artistic depictions of these events like we do at Tikal. If we go there, we see the monuments and the writing. What's being investigated there today? There is a reanalysis of the writing, which, you know, from the 1970s, when this outline of these events was first suggested, my writing wasn't fully deciphered yet. They're getting a better idea of who all these major players were and what their relationship was precisely between them and stuff like where Siakak might have gone after Tikal. Was he involved in founding new dynasties at other Maya cities? There's also new excavations at Tikal that's looking at this early period of the city. The stuff you see at Tikal now, it's actually built a little bit later than when most of the stuff's happening. So it's been a little bit hard to excavate because it's underneath. And there's also just lots of excavations in lots of different Maya cities and this big LIDAR project, which is this sort of radar-like thing that you shoot down at the ground from a plane. And it allows you to make these maps where you can sort of take off the tree cover and see the archaeological sites underneath. And so that's also adding a lot of information to what archaeologists know about what's going on in the Maya world at this time. So how is LIDAR contributing to better understanding of these regions? In this case, one of the questions is, how did Teotihuacan's presence change anything for Maya commoners? If it did at all, you sort of need a larger regional view of that. You can't just excavate a palace. The LIDAR sort of gives you a much broader view. One thing that seems to be emerging is that a lot of land around Tikal, like there seems to be these ditches and watchtowers built on top of hills and defensive infrastructure. Yeah, fortifications that archaeologists had only had a tiny glimpse of before. And now they can see that it really probably extends quite far. Is that to defend against Teotihuacan? Is that Teotihuacan coming in and building this stuff? Because more mysteries. More mysteries. It's all only more mysteries. Is there any evidence that other cities besides Tikal came under the domain of this new leadership? Yeah, so there's a couple of inscriptions saying that Siakak shows up in other cities and sort of is referred to as an overlord or a leader. There's a place called Holmul, which is very close to Tikal, where a year after Siakak's arrival in Tikal, they commemorate a building about that event. And there's these Mm. mural paintings of Teotihuacan warriors accompanying a new king to the throne of Holmul. This is very suggestive, but not everyone thinks this is exactly as easy to interpret as it might seem. We're raising the idea, oh, invisible empire that we didn't know about before, or there's this other theory. What is the other theory that maybe this isn't necessarily uh, Teotihuacan taking over a big part of Maya territory? Yeah. So Teotihuacan does have a pretty extensive geographic reach. I think Mm -hmm. the debate is whether and how intensely that extends into this Maya world. Some people see these inscriptions at Tikal and think there's not really any great evidence that these people were actually from Teotihuacan. Siakak is a Maya name. No description of where he's from is given. Tikal doesn't really become, become a colony. Like it stays a Maya city. Its culture doesn't change that much. It doesn't seem like it's subjugated by this voracious mm-hmm. empire. And really interesting some of the key people that are associated with these Teotihuacan kings in the Maya region, like Spirithar al's son, who becomes the king of Tikal. And also there's a king of Copan, which is a Maya city in Honduras that has some connections to Teotihuacan in the writing. They found both of their bodies and neither of these people 
are from Teotihuacan. Neither of them grew up in Teotihuacan. Neither of them are from this thousand kilometer away metropolis. Yeah, they're both Maya. You can study the isotopes in their teeth to see where they grew up. So basically the isotopes from the water in each region are slightly mm-hmm. different. And so you can sort of track the isotopes that are preserved in their teeth to different parts. Okay, so they aren't from Teotihuacan. Why then are there so many markers of Teotihuacan associated with their rule? You know, I think the people who are skeptical that Teotihuacan, the city, is literally involved in this, think that the Maya were sort of appropriating this imagery of this faraway foreign power that's known for its great military might. Mm. So these Maya people are dressing up as Teotihuacanos to lead rebellions against the dynasties in their cities. And so Siakak, he could have taken over a bunch of Maya cities, but he might not have been working for a king of Teotihuacan. He might have been working for just another Maya ruler. This idea of a faraway power would have been very potent for the Maya and especially Teotihuacan, which was such a unique city. It was so big. Its military force was so strong. They might have just been sort of tapping into that symbolically rather than being literal people from that place. Yeah. I think there's some really interesting tensions that you pull out in your story. And one is you have these two cities, these two sites. They seem to be talking about each other, but they have different kinds of evidence. Those different pieces of evidence point to different things. Yeah, totally. It's very confusing. (laughs) And this is why it's like sort of such a fruitful and exciting debate as well, because there are all these different lines of evidence that seem to be saying slightly different things. So you have the Maya writing, precise dates down to the day, year, month, with people's names, sometimes people's relationships, like their family relationships. And you can sort of track these people through time, like it's much like working with an archive. As we know from all other forms of history, especially Maya history, which was carved into these monuments and palaces, like there's some feeling that this writing is essentially propaganda done for the benefit of um, the elites in other cities. So it's not necessarily really reflecting what is happening for everyone. Maybe it wasn't really a conquest in the way that we would think of it, that it would change everybody who lived in Tikal's life. Maybe it was just sort of a new king and nobody else really cared. And at Teotihuacan, you have these radiocarbon dates that vaguely coincide with the written dates that the Maya record. You can say, okay, these Maya murals were destroyed sometime between 350 and 400. Were they destroyed before Siakak got to Tikal? After? Were these completely unrelated events? Yeah, like You can't really tell that from the dates alone. And then you have these isotopes data, which is considered the gold standard in, in archaeology about the individual lives of people, saying these people who are depicted as Teotihuacan warriors in Maya art have nothing to do with Teotihuacan (laughs) in in their biology. They don't necessarily fully contradict each other all the time. They also don't really line up into a neat Mm -hmm. for sure story. So what happened after, after the change in leadership in Tikal? What happened to Tikal and what happened to Teotihuacan like over the centuries? Tikal actually really expands after this invasion, conquest, whatever happens in 378. There's a lot of Maya cities. Tikal is like a big, relatively big one, but it's not particularly special before this event. And after this event, it becomes a really major Mm -hmm. power in this region with lots of other cities allied with it. And they sort of continue using this Teotihuacan imagery for a long time in their history. Even 
after Teotihuacan itself collapses, which happens around 550. Mm. And that's another kind of mysterious event. It seems like maybe there was some kind of rebellion of the citizens in the city. It doesn't seem to have been attacked from outside, but Teotihuacan stops being sort of a political force in Mesoamerica around 550, less than 200 years after this stuff happens. But Tikal, even centuries later, is still using this Teotihuacan imagery and clearly remembering this important event that changed the course of their history. And whether that means just that this left a huge imprint on, on them, like that they could remember beyond the actual existence of Teotihuacan, or it could mean that Teotihuacan never really had anything to do with this at all. And it really was all about the imagery to begin with. So like even that is a little bit up for debate. What would be a really good thing to find? What is the piece of evidence that would kind of show everybody what actually happened? I think this debate would be really hard to resolve and you're going to need evidence from a lot of different places. But one exciting thing that's going on right now is that there are new excavations at Tikal looking specifically at the part of the city that was active during this time period. And the archaeologist there is looking for people from Teotihuacan living in Tikal. We know that there are immigrant communities in Teotihuacan, including this Maya community, but that hasn't really been a focus in Maya cities. Finding a colony of Teotihuacanos in Tikal wouldn't necessarily definitively prove conquest or invasion or like what exactly was the political drama that was going on, but it would at least show that people from Teotihuacan are in the Maya world and that this isn't just an inter-Maya story. Like there is some kind of foreign involvement. But again, that's ongoing and those results are going to be announced this summer. Thank you so much, Lizzie. Thanks, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent based in Mexico City. You can find a link to the article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Rashid Somalia about the staggering cost of the illegal fish trade. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. You may have heard of illegal fishing being bad for the environment, bad for sustainable fishing. But as Rashid Somalia and colleagues report this week in Science Advances, the illegal fishing trade is also incredibly costly. Hi, Rashid. Hi. How are you, Sarah? Good. So I glossed over this in my intro. What exactly is legal and illegal fishing? Essentially, you're fishing illegally. If you are fishing where, according to the laws of the country in whose waters you are fishing, you are not supposed to fish, you don't have a license, you are not authorized to catch fish in the area, and you do so, then it is illegal. But what what you tend to care about is large-scale illegal fishing, so not just a person who didn't get a fishing license and went and caught a couple fish. Exactly, yes, because, you know, for, for subsistence fishers, people who catch the fish, to feed themselves and their families, 
that cannot be classified as illegal. In most cases, there's no reporting system. There's even no rules saying you shouldn't catch and fish and feed your family. So that is not our issue here. The issue is the large industrial fishing fleets. Most of the time, they're international, actually, who come in and take the fish from domestic waters without the authorization to do so. So we wanted to know in this study how much fish was being taken out of the oceans And then on top of that, how much that costs local economies. So how did you try to get a handle on these numbers? We were able to do this here now in 2020 because we started putting together databases way back in the early 2000s. We have databases of catches, the amount of fish we take out to eat, and also fish that we take out and throw back in. Fish we don't like, they come in as backers. So we we have a comprehensive database of how much fish we remove from the ocean. So that's database number one. The second thing we have, which is the economics part of it, that's the beauty. In our group, we have ecologists and economists and other scientists it's interdisciplinary. So we, the economists, we also put together databases on the fish price, the amount you pay at the dock, and also fish prices along the fish chain. So we are able to know what a wholesaler will pay at the dock for fish, how that goes to the retailer, and up to the point you eat the fish in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So we, we have data on this. Now, when you bring these things together, then you are able to do this kind of study. And a part of the total catch, we also have unreported catches and reported Mm -hmm. catches. And from the unreported, the large-scale part, a portion of that, ends up in what we call illicit trade in fish because they are traded outside of the former economy and therefore they are illegal and illicit, in fact. Right, so you think of it as fish laundering, right? Absolutely. It's just like somebody stealing hats and laundering it or all the other illegal and illicit activities and ethical activities that people do. So that's how we see this this Mm -hmm. part of it. And the, the reason why it's a huge thing economically is that, especially for small countries, developing countries, the fish never touch their coast. Big boats on the ocean, there's steal this fish, they process it and ship it out. So it doesn't get processed. People don't get jobs and incomes and their food. Absolutely. And the scale is really staggering what you found out. First, let's talk about how many fish that you calculated were illicitly traded or illegally fished. Hey, this is a, a lot, actually. We, we're looking at 8 to 14 million tons of fish taken out of in the a year. in a year. And I usually what I do is I convert this to the number of mature cows, just to let people understand, right? That is the equivalent of at least about 14 million, 15 million mature cows being pulled out. I call them fish cows. So how do you know when people are not reporting that they've taken fish and that the fish are taken? Yeah. So this is almost detective work. And thanks to really motivated students, a lot of credit goes to them. So we do a lot of digging to find out what is the true take, you know, and discuss. So, for example, we had a student, Nicole, she's from Bahamas. And we look at the national data and it just doesn't make sense, you know. The total amount they report, if you go to Bahamas during the holiday season, 
every restaurant is serving fish. If you just make a quick back of the envelope calculation, there's no how the national number will mm. just make it. So she goes out there and checks the number of restaurants, the average number of eaters, and how might they eat. And then we work it out. We have a beautiful saying. We say, if you take fish, somehow that fish will cast a shadow on society because it's going to be processed, it's going to be eaten, it's going to show up somewhere in the system. And then you also convert it to the money, how much this takes out of the global economy. Can you talk about how much that is? You know, when you look at the basic dollars, you know, we talk about tons of fish and missing mature cows, if added value to this conversation. When you just look at the value at that point, we're talking about $17 billion there about. Wow. That's a year. It's a year, a year. And in places where this is real money. I mean, if we converted this to the purchasing power parity of, say, people in West Africa, Southeast Asia, this is multiples more. Because mm-hmm. the dollars to somebody in Senegal or in Papao, I mean, it's much more valuable than a dollar to you and me in Vancouver and New York or DC, right? So that's, that's it. Now, that is the, the raw amount at the dock. If you take this through the, the value chain, which is really important because this is where the jobs are, the people who process the fish, the people who, who do the cooking and serving in the restaurants, right? That takes us to about $50 billion a year mm. going into the illegal system. What about the taxes? How does that fit into this? If you take out an economic activity, you make it informal, you make it illicit and illegal. What that means is that the, the activities are not reported to the authorities formally. And that means tax revenues are lost. Here too, the main losers are really African, Asian, and Latin, some of Asian, not all of them, and Latin American countries. We estimate about $4 billion of taxes. And this is really very minimal estimate. We underestimate it just because we don't have hard facts there. We use forestry numbers to try to help us. But you will agree with me that it's easier to tax a tree than a fish, right? It's easier to hide a fish, right? <laughs> exactly. And the fish move and all that. So this is very conservative, but that's still a lot of money for the countries most hit by mm. this activity. Are those places that you mentioned, Southeast Asia, West Africa, are those the places that are particularly hard hit by this trafficking? Absolutely. If you take Asia, Africa, and Latin America together, that is 85% of the 14 million tons of fish we talk about. So that's a lot. Over 80, 80% of the total dollar amounts we're talking here. And the, the large industrial boats are not their boats, you know. This is European boats or whatever Chinese boats coming into parts of the world and doing this. And it really saps the economies of countries that need to move their economies forward. Is that the primary route then? So it's the fish are taken out of the sea and they never touch land and they're processed on a boat and then they basically join, they join the fish market from yeah, there. Yeah, laundering, right? They laundered into the big markets of the world, which is Europe, America, and Japan. China, of course, is big and getting bigger. And these local domestic fishes are deprived of their fish, jobs, and incomes. Does this type of fishing, this large-scale industrial fishing that isn't 
permitted. Does it impact how people manage their fisheries? Does it basically deprive the local people of the kind of fish they need to eat? Absolutely, yeah. You, you see, the, a good example is, is Senegal. You know, they have this gupa. It's so central to the culture. They make jollof rice. I don't know whether you, you, you've heard of jollof rice, <laughs> Do you know? the West African thing, right? And you have this grouper. The big family will just have one big grouper on top of their jollof rice. Everybody is on, on, on the big bowl. And this fish is virtually gone. Where you find them these days is in the big hotels where the locals cannot patronize. So this has real consequences on people. This is tough when you follow the fishing story. About 260 million people around the world earn some income and livelihood from ocean fisheries, from the gross catching it through to the food system, right? Yeah. So it's a global issue, really. We know this is illegal because there are laws, there are rules in place that say you must report what fish you've caught in the waters to like whoever locally controls those waters. And then sometimes you have to pay money. Yeah. Who writes those laws? Are those international law? Are they varying country by country? Essentially country by country. So countries do this. But this is done under the auspices of the UN, UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, which is the big umbrella law globally that says within 200 nautical miles of the coast of a maritime country, is the country's waters, essentially. And the fish is there. Citizens of the country own this fish. Yeah, that turn, that's a good way to start talking about how you recommend that this be addressed. This is something that you have in your paper is a bunch of different options. So what what kinds of approaches can be taken to cut back on this illegal trade? The paper has a, a table where we actually itemize what various groups or levels, whether it's government or private sector, what we need to do to deal with this. One of the big things we need to do is collaboration across national borders because the fish do not respect all our divisions and lines. They go where they go. There is one species of bluefin tuna that we found out goes through, if if it stays alive, goes through the country waters of at least 53 countries around the world in its lifetime. So you need solid international collaboration. Yeah. And actually, there's a nice example where we saw that, where the U.S. and South Africa worked together to nail down a big illegal fishing company in South Africa. This uh, business guy, he's South African, he's also American, he has American passport. And the lobster, I believe, South African lobster, he, they were illegally catching more than 50% of the national quota wow. and shipping it out. So one diligent scientist managed to track them and prove this. You know what this guy did when the South Africans went after him? He just flew into the U.S. as a U.S. citizen. Mm-hmm. He has passport. And that kept the South Africans. They couldn't get him. But fortunately, in this case, U.S. and South Africa have a nice agreement to deal with this kind of thing. So he was actually arrested in the U.S., They went through the court system and the company was fined about $60 million, I remember. 
I think, 60 million for all the illegal stuff they did, harming the environment and the economy of South Africa and that of the U.S. because they were shipping it to the U.S. And lofta fishes in the U.S. were being harmed because, mm-hmm. you know, it pushes the price artificially because he's an illegal. And, and that was such a good example how international collaboration can help nail down these big ones. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it as, you know, the way people share a river, right? If anybody decides to put a dam in or to start taking a bunch of water out, it affects all these other places. That's it. All right, Rashid, thank you so much for talking Uh, with me. You're most welcome. Thank you. Rashid Somalia is a professor and Canada Research Chair in Interdisciplinary Ocean and Fisheries Economics at the University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. You can find a link to his Science Advances article at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial. Our book segment is still to come. Kiki Sanford and author Guy Evans discuss her new book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolve Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. Welcome to the book segment of the Science Podcast. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and this week we are going to delve into a brilliant and hopeful story of humanity and our interconnectedness with science writer and broadcaster Gaia Vince, whose latest book is called Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. Thank you for joining me today, Gaia. Great to be here. Your last book was about the Anthropocene. In the new book, you focus much more on humanity. What was the logical leap between the two books? Well, in a sense, this is almost a prequel. For my Anthropocene book, I I was traveling for two and a half years around the globe, exploring this new age and this extraordinary effect that one species is having on the planet, on our biodiversity, on uh, even the temperature of the atmosphere, the acidity of the oceans. I was looking at this incredible planetary change that we're undergoing at the moment, which is driven by us. And I started wondering, you know, how did a smart ape become this planet-dominating force? And to me, this is the greatest question. You know, who are we? What makes us so special? Why are we not seemingly reined in by all the limitations that seem to affect all the rest of life? In your view, what has allowed us to transcend? Humans are the product of the co-evolution of our genes, but also our environment and our culture. So this triad, this human evolutionary triad. And I'm making the case in Transcendence that the biggest evolutionary driver in the success of the human ape is not our slow-burning biology, but our fast-moving culture. How does culture make the difference? So my central thesis is that all humans have the same biology. There is more genetic diversity between two chimpanzees either side of the Congo River than there is between two humans from different continents. And yet we don't see that because we have this enormous cultural variation. We've basically culturally speciated. And this diversity, it gives us our resilience. It's our strength. We are all the product of our particular cultural developing bath. So the cultural developing bath that we are born into, and that's of our locality, our culture, our social norms, and that's what makes us different. And it even affects our life chances. And this cultural speciation is very different from our genetic speciation because 
people of different cultures, of course, can move across and um, learn and take part and integrate and assimilate and become a part and change the culture that they move to in a way that we can't with our genes. So we are actually incredibly flexible and we make our culture, we make, we invent ourselves. And that has a massive influence on our biology, on our genes and our environment. And so we get these feedback loops. And that's really what I'm talking about when I talk about our human evolutionary triad. Does this mean that culture is going to influence the biology and the genetics and potentially also the environment that we live in, all of it working together as we move forward through time? Our culture is is a part of what it means to be human. It's a very fundamental part of who we are. Cultural evolution affects our biology, the way our bodies and minds work. For instance, people whose cultural developing bath involves literacy, people who can read well are less good at recognizing faces because our brains have specialized in word recognition instead of facial recognition. The words we use also affect our perception. For example, colors. People who don't have a separate word for a color, like blue, can't distinguish the color as well as people who do have that. We have those words in our language, which means we actually see them. Now, there's nothing different about the biology of our eyes or our brains at birth. But what's happened is our culture has changed the way we see things. How has the tonality of language been influenced? That is really interesting. Just as our biology is affected by our culture and our environment, so our culture is affected by our biology and our environment. So people who live in different environments, say warm wooded environments, speak with a different number of consonants in their language than people who live in dry, more desert environments. Languages spoken in warm, wet, heavily wooded areas, such as in Southeast Asia, tend to use more vowels and fewer consonants, mostly in simple syllables. But English and Georgian languages, which didn't involve in rainforests, have lots and lots of consonants. The languages of those that live in altitude contain more words with a strong expulsion of air in the consonants, whereas arid desert-like places are less likely to have tonal languages. And that's partly because of the harmful effects of the dryness, so the environmental effect, on the vocal cord movement. So that's an anatomical, environmental cultural adaptation. I don't think the environmental effects on our biology and our culture have really been acknowledged to the extent that they actually play out in in the human evolutionary story. We've been talking about language, but you have broken your book down into four sections, fire, language, beauty, and time. Can you expand a bit on why fire was important beyond simply the ability to cook our food? A central theme of this book is that our great success as a species is down to our ability to harness energy better than any other life form. So all of life is limited by the amount of energy it can control, it can harness. And that depends on how much it can eat, or in the case of a plant, how much photosynthesis it can do. However, we have managed to exceed that. And that's really the secret to our success. We control energy better than any other life form. But what gave us this advantage? 
let me take you back to, to what makes us distinctive compared to other species. So there is a lot of belief, perhaps, that it's our brains, it's our big brains. But it's not our individual intelligence that's made us so successful, but our collective intelligence. And that's because we do something that no other species does. And that is that we cooperate in large numbers with unrelated individuals, with strangers even. And this is a central theme to our species, collaboration. And it's so important that we've developed rituals and practices to encourage it and and make it pleasurable. So we seek more of it. And and part of that is through language, it's through storytelling. We dance, we sing, we, we do all sorts of things together to make it pleasurable. But at the root of this, collaboration makes us better, more efficient hunters because we can outsource the physical and mental costs of hunting to our group and to our technologies. And what I mean by this is the energy costs of the physical or mental work. We don't just rely on our individual brains. We outsource our thinking energy to the group. We have the efficiency of scale in terms of outsourcing our physical and our mental energy costs. But we also have in this toolbox of all these human minds, this collective brain, and if you think about where we are now with seven and a half billion of us, many of whom are on the internet. So the more people and the more interconnected, the more chances there are of these people and these ideas to meet then you get this explosion of cultural complexity. And that's, that's really what we're seeing now. You propose calling humans no longer homo sapiens, but homo omnis. Where did that come from? And why is homo omnis uh, special and important in your view? I think what's happening is we're reaching a tipping point in the way that we operate on this planet. Up until now, we've had these local effects and we've acted fairly locally, even regionally within our societies. But I think what's happening now really truly is planetary. We're changing the environment in a planetary way, but we're also operating in a lot of ways planetarily, which means we're not operating as a family or a tribe or even a society. We're we're really operating as humanity as this super organism of humans. So I call this creature homni, homo omnis. It's kind of the combination of all of our effects. And I, and I compare it a bit to the slime mold. I sort of see it as this hyper-connected, massive population, which all acts together and sort of blunders along, where we're all a little bit of part of this. And our effects are, are systemic. So there's not a lot we can do to change some of these huge outcomes, but we can act together to do things. So we can influence this superorganism, this homni superorganism. But also our fate is very much interlinked with uh, Homni's fate, because we are also part of Homni. Is every human equally a part of Homni? We are not equally a part of Homni. So some of us are on the outside where we're less protected, and some of us are nice and secure. So at the moment, we do have these huge inequalities where some people have no power and no influence over the way that Homni goes and the way Homni affects them. And others do have a lot of power This is not given by our genes. It's to do with our our social inheritance. It's entirely socially orchestrated. So we have many choices about how this works and how we can move it, but we have to act in a way that we try and align our, our interests and to be as inclusive as possible. That's the way I think that this could have a very positive outcome. 
science goes against so many of our innate ways of thinking. And perhaps therein lies one of the difficulties of moving forward culturally. Yes, exactly. It's a different way of thinking about the world. And it's not necessarily a better way. It's just a different way. Scientific understanding is very different. This rational way of understanding is very different from this, the sort of subjective way of understanding. And we have both. So in the book, I talk about the different ways that we have of understanding, one of which is subjective, this idea that we decide something is worth something more if we beautify it. And as a result, we like things like gold or diamonds. We think they're worth a lot. Whereas, you know, actually, what are they worth? We can't eat them. You know, they don't keep us warm. So they have a subjective value, which we've agreed as a society is um, important. But then there is this other way of thinking about the world, this other way of experiencing and understanding the world, which is not based on culturally learned, handed down knowledge, but it's based on objective testing and experimentation. And this goes way back. It's not, it's not something that was just invented. It's, it's something that we understand in a very different way from our subjective knowledge about the world. And that's something that humans can do really well. I can't understand a quantum world at all, but I can work it out mathematically and I can follow equations explaining it, but I, I don't have the same knowledge of it. And I think that's really interesting. And I wonder if our brains will evolve to start having a sort of more experiential understanding of these things in time. Who knows? I think that would be so exciting (laughs) to be able to go to change our story to the point that we don't just think of ourselves, you know, wherever you're located on earth, looking out into the heavens, but to place yourself mentally within our solar system in an arm of the Milky Way. Yeah, this is how we understand our world scientifically. And I think perhaps some people do have more of an experiential understanding of it. Perhaps there are geniuses whose brains are wired in a way that they can understand this more intuitively than I can. And this is why we need this great diversity of minds and these great diversity of mindsets to help the rest of us take the next step on our cultural evolutionary journey. Well, thank you for helping us take a step along that journey by writing your books and sharing these new perspectives with everyone, sharing this knowledge. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for joining me for this interview with Gaia Vince about her book, Transcendence, How Humans Evolved Through Fire, Language, Beauty, and Time. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford, and I hope that you'll join us again next month for a peek between the pages of another science book. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you're going to find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, and many other podcasty places. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. 
Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.